Hi, this is Pastor Danny Deeth, and I'm so excited that you have chosen to join us here at First Presbyterian Church for worship today. Know that the love, grace, mercy, and joy of Jesus Christ beckon you to join our church family as we seek to celebrate our journey with Christ in this service of worship. So we're glad you're here. Come on in. These are familiar words from Matthew, the 14th chapter, verses 13 through 21. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and all ate and were filled. And they looked up what was left over and the broken pieces filled 12 baskets. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Our second reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Paul writing to his church in Corinth that are having some struggles. Listen. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labors of each. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, 
the builder will be saved, but only as through fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you know the story, children's story. There was a mama pig who had three baby pigs, and those pigs grew up. And one day they wanted to go out into the world and build their own homes. Well, the first one we know goes and builds his house out of straw. He's kicking back, watching a little TV, knock, knock, knock. It's that big old bad wolf. Says, open the door and let me in. Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. Good. I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff and I'm going to blow your house down. And he does. <gasps> Wipes out the house of straw. Well, that little pig goes to the second house that was built with sticks. Knock, knock, knock. Open the door and let me in. I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff and I'm going to blow your house down. <sighs> Gone. They go to the third pig's house. This pig built with brick. So all three are in there kicking back and the wolf comes, knock, 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 open the door and let me in. And why are pigs so hairy on their chins? I'm not quite sure about that. He huffs and puffs and he blows. <gasps> doesn't blow the house down. He can't because it was made from bricks, sturdy, strong. This story that we all know and grew up with segues really well into Paul's letter to the Corinthians today. What do we know about Corinthians? Well, the city of Corinth, we know, is a port for trading. It's a port that had a variety of Greco-Roman gods present. There were, they've been some 12-plus archaeological sites that have been found, uh, temples worshiping other gods and a variety of gods and probably that many much more in the day. Corinth wasn't so concerned with the challenge between Jews and Gentiles, as some of other Paul's letters are, but more, number one, there was a huge disparity between the haves and the have-nots. There were a lot of wealthy people and a lot in abject poverty. And the second thing was the worship of idols. So much in that culture swirling around, and then to try to break in there with the idea of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit you would think there would be some confusion and some trials, which there are. So at this point, Paul had already been to Corinth, established the church, and he had moved on. And now there's a guy there whose name is Apollos. And he is a good and faithful servant. He is eloquent of speech. And the Corinthians are starting to take sides between Paul and Apollos. Oh, that old church being fractured by something or someone. So it's becoming a problem. Paul gets the word and says, hey, some people are following Apollos and they like him, but 
You were the one who came, and so we are following you. So Paul writes in this specific place, it's not Paul or Apollos, it's God. It's not either of us, it's God. I might do the planting, Paul says, Apollos might do the watering, but it is God who causes the growth. Only God can do that. Paul's saying, in essence, it's not about me, it's not about Apollos, it's not about us. We do our part, and Paul says that those laborers who do the planting and the watering will be compensated, paid, given wages for their effort, but it is God who causes the growth. And the second half then is dedicated to the image moving from agricultural with this growth analogy to one of a building. You are God's building, Paul says, and like a master builder, I laid the foundation. Who is the foundation? In church, the right answer is always pretty much Jesus, right? Jesus is the foundation, and we continue to build on that. Others, the implication that others will continue to build on what I have done and that building will continue. Great passage for today on Consecration Sunday. Great passage for us on Reformation Sunday. If you remember, Reformation Sunday celebrates our Protestant Reformation, our break from the Roman Catholic Church, whom we dearly love, all in the same Christian family. But October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther stepped up, nailed up his 95 theses, many meant to have uh, an academic conversation or a forum, let's get together, let's think about this, but it took on steam and was the catalyst needed for several things already in place in different parts of Europe that kind of combined into this snowball that started what we know as the Protestant Reformation. In those 95 theses, or edicts. Luther lines out several things that he takes issue with, with the Catholic Church. And one of the things that helps Luther get traction, Martin Luther, where others had tried and had not, was the printing press. The internet of its time, the email of its day, the new technology was this printing press. Now they could write down Luther's ideas and carry it or send it or take it to the next town, the next village, the next city, even the next country. And that's what helped get a foothold for Luther, where others hadn't to that point. So to quickly walk through bits of history, we come then to John Calvin, who we look at as one of the fathers of our Presbyterian church. He was French from France, and when he broke with the Roman Catholic Church, he went to Geneva, Switzerland, and it would soon become kind of a safe hub for the Reformation and the reformers that were being excommunicated, threatened, even tortured in some cases. So Calvin goes, and he's there for a while, and Geneva isn't comfortable with Calvin, so they banish him. They kick him out of Geneva. He goes to Strasbourg, 
Germany and leads a church for other French exiles like himself. A few years later, then, Geneva looks and sees what he's doing and says, okay, we were wrong, come back. So he comes back and starts to institute open schools, starts to transform their government, comes up with new worship and procedures for being church that's different from what everybody knew in the mass that they had come from and what would eventually grow into our Presbyterian liturgy and other orders of book of order and worship, pieces and parts. So we move on. How do we get to Scotland then? Presbyterians trace their history to Scotland. That's John Knox. That's the John Knox piece. So John Knox then goes to Geneva and studies with Calvin. And they overlap for a little while. And again, this is a rough, rough uh, uh, telling of this history. John Knox brings back some of Calvin's teachings into what becomes the Church of Scotland. And that's where our Presbyterian history can be traced, takes root in the Church of Scotland. Then through a series of monarchical choices and dealings, the Ulster region of Scots, Scotch-Irish are sent to this region and are persecuted, and then they come to the United States. They start to build in the mid to late 1700s. People like John Witherspoon, who was a Scotsman, signed the Declaration of Independence, bringing this Presbyterian ideal philosophy theology to the area of, he was the president, John Witherspoon, of the College of New Jersey, which became Princeton University. And Presbyterianism built up in Philadelphia, that area, and expanded out. And for the next hundred years, Presbyterianism grows. There were plenty of opportunities to follow Apollo. They fought over Apollo and Paul, meaning there were always seen to be things that the church can inwardly fight and fracture over. Over time, as we come into our modern era, we have slavery, we have the ordination of women, we have homosexuality issues up to the present day. Now in that time, northern church and the southern church were split up to the 60s, 70s, and then in the 80s, 1983, both northern and southern churches united to form what is our now PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA. And that vote, by the way, was taken right here, right here in the sanctuary. And then it went out back to all the presbyteries for approval. But that vote happened here. I hear a lot about a vote a few years ago, but I also want to remember that vote that united Presbyterians in this country that happened several years before that. So here we are. This is our day, our time. That building imagery is so important for us because we know that we are in that in-between time that Christ came, walked on the earth, and then ascended after crucifixion, resurrection, and Christ will come again at the second coming. Until then, we are the hands and feet of Christ in that in-between time. 
God has chosen to work through us with the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit that we can continue to build up God's kingdom on earth, to build the kingdom on earth. All of us have been given bricks in this metaphor, this analogy, by the Holy Spirit that we are to use to contribute to building up of the kingdom. So how are we doing First Presbyterian Church? We doing all right? We doing some good things? Are we hanging on? Is our house built of straw? Is our house of sticks? Are we in between? Or are we solid? Brick by brick, through all those generations, all the way back to the 1800s, Think about us as being those who have inherited all of the faith, this space, brick by brick. In their time, they felt just like we did. They were doing what we did. They went about their daily lives. They did their Sundays. They did their Wednesdays. They did their Bible studies. They met. They did fellowship. They studied. They served others for generation to generation to generation till it lands with us today. Think about that first last supper that Christ and his disciples participated in, that lands that we participate in when we have communion. That connects us all the way to the very beginning of our Christian journey. And all of those saints who went before us in this church put their brick on their brick, on their neighbor's brick, And the next generation built on them and the next generation continued to build so that we could be here today to now share our part to ensure that the future will continue and that our present is one that others can look at and see our faith, see our discipleship, see us living the joy at first Presbyterian Church. We are a church as much as we think church is stagnant and we think that church is the same every Sunday, blah, 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 blah. The church is a living thing. There was a man who went to see the Grand Canyon and he looked down in awe, in wonder of it all. And he said, man, I wish I would have been here to see that happen. And the ranger right there said, you are. As the Colorado River continues to wind and cut and make that space evolve into something new and living, the church too is that space. It is both familiar and it is also evolving according to the bricks that you will lay upon the bricks of those who came before us, if we will. In this day of stewardship, this is our chance not to hold back. Each brick that we share, as I talked about last week, impacts the lives of others. You are feeding the hungry. You are clothing the naked. You are providing water for the thirsty, homes for the homeless, medicine for the sick, visiting those in prison. With every dollar you give, with every moment you give, with every talent you give, with every brick that you give, we build and build, and you are changing lives through God's Holy Spirit with Christ as the foundation. What we don't want to do is keep those bricks all tight together in one place and have them not be used by God for transformation. If you remember the 1993 movie Schindler's List, 
that chronicled Oscar Schindler, 1944, the end of World War II, but came in as a profiteer, a businessman who opened factories to profit from the war. He was a member of the Nazi party, but not because he agreed with their policies or their platform, but because it would benefit his business in it for the money. He got Jews in Krakow, Poland to be his workforce. And as time progresses from the Jews in the ghetto to the concentration camps, he has a change of heart as he gets to know them and see them as people, get to know their families. And there's a turning point where he then stops worrying so much about the production of his factories, but how to save these people. Because he bribed all of the Nazi guards and party officials to let him keep his Jews in the factory, even when they started to be executed. So to work in Schindler's, to be on Schindler's list, to work in Schindler's factory was to be given life. So fast forward to the very end of the movie. The world, the, the war, World War II is ending and Schindler and his wife now, because they are members of the Nazi party and because they're war profiteers, are having to flee. All of those roughly 1,200 Jews that he saved are out there to watch him go. His car is here. And Itzhak Stern, played by Ben Kingsley, is there. That was his kind of right-hand man, his Jewish kind of liaison who helped him get all of his things done. They gave him a letter that they all signed that says, if you get captured, give them this. It will explain that you weren't really a member of the Nazi party and you saved all of us. And as he looks around, he sees all the faces of those and he looks at his car and he says, I, I should have done more. I should have done more. He said, I wasted so much money. I wasted so much time. He said, this car, this car is 10 lives. Why did I keep it? I should have saved 10 people. He takes his Nazi pen off. This is gold. I could have bought two more lives with this. This ring would have bought another life. And he breaks down in tears and Ben Kingsley's character and weeps. He gets into the car and they move on. And the thing about Oscar Schindler today is both what we want to emulate and what we don't. He obviously became in relationship with those that were different from him. And once he did, he was willing to risk his very life to save them, to help them. That's the part we need to emulate. The part we don't want to be caught in is that last part where we look at our life at the end of the day, the week, the year, the decade, or our life and say, I, I could have done so much more. I could have given so much more of my time, my faith, my love, everything that I am and have, and I could have changed someone's life. Today, our opportunity is given to us by Paul. We are continuing to build on what has already been built and together, we can proclaim the risen Christ through those bricks that we will add to those who came before us and those that will come after us. 
We are Christ's disciples in this time and this place. So with open hearts, with convicted minds, and with the discipleship of the one who has given us all, I would invite us to take one minute of silence, and then I will invite you to please come forward with your pledges, tithes, and offerings.